This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. You're in tech in 2024. Of course you're busy. Whether it's staying on top of potential cyber threats or keeping up with what's trending in tech, you need to know your network is covered. You need a partner you can rely on. You need one provider with fully integrated network and security solutions. You need Comcast Business for managed services and tailored solutions that are built to keep your business going. Powering the CIOs that make it happen. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Facial recognition technology is everywhere. A scan of your face can unlock your smartphone, let you into your building, or land you in jail for a crime you didn't commit. And facial recognition is what Detroit police use to show up at the driveway of a man named Robert Williams and arrest him on suspicion of shoplifting. Williams spent 30 hours in a detention facility, but when police provided photos, he didn't know who he was looking at. I picked that paper up and hold it next to my face. And I said, this is not me. I'm like, I hope y'all don't think all black people look alike. And then he says, the computer says it's you. It turns out computer algorithms aren't so infallible, particularly when it comes to facial recognition of minorities. My guest today, Joy Bulamwini, is fighting to ensure that the tech and data that can define our destinies are not biased. She's a digital activist based at the MIT Media Lab and founder of the Algorithmic Justice League which sounds like it could be part of the DC Comics extended universe, but it's actually a group of computer geeks that fights bias in coding. A couple of years ago, armed with only about 1,200 images, Bulamwini took tech giants like Amazon, Microsoft, and IBM to task. And she proved that the facial recognition technologies that these companies touted was both racist and sexist. Big surprise. I love a good story about taking big tech down a notch, and we'll get there. But first, I asked Joy to break down the artificial intelligence and machine learning processes behind facial recognition. When I think about artificial intelligence, I think about this ongoing quest to equip computers with abilities that have traditionally required human intelligence, right? So visual perception, uh, speech recognition, language translation, recognizing uh, face. Now, there are different approaches on this quest for intelligence. And one of those approaches that's been very um, successful is called machine learning, learning from data sets. So for example, example, to teach a machine how to detect a face, you can provide many examples of photos, and then you can use different techniques to learn the representation of a face. And it's also predictive. It's giving guesses about what could happen. Yes, and I love that you use the word guesses because guess adds to the fact that these predictions are not certain. Right, but it's treated with some certainty because it's a computer. People think of that that way. Yes, the fact that it's coming from a computer can give a sense of authority and a sense of objectivity that isn't actually true. I remember when Google was starting to do photo identification and they just fed all kinds of pictures of the Eiffel Tower and eventually it understood this was the Eiffel Tower or this is a cup or this is a spoon or whatever it is. And kids learn the same way. I have a small child now and she's like looking at things and we were doing that this morning. But when it comes to faces, it's very 
different. And your argument is that AI systems and facial recognition technology is shaped by prejudices. And it's something you call coded gaze. And this is something you've experienced firsthand. So why don't you talk about how you first became interested and what happened? I was a graduate student at MIT. I took a course called Science Fabrication. You read science fiction and then you create something you probably otherwise wouldn't do. Like a time machine, whatever. A a time machine. I wanted to uh, shapeshift. But given the laws of physics and the fact that we only had six weeks, I thought instead of shifting my physical body, maybe I could shift my reflection in a mirror. And so I worked on this project where in the mirror, it could look like I had become a lion or somebody I admire, like Serena Williams. Right, which is common now in phones. They can put a face on top of yours for fun. Right. So it's like, think of it as a Snapchat filter, but instead of it being on your phone, it's through a mirror. So it looks like it's on your reflected face. And what year was this? I think this was 2015 when I first got to the Media Lab. And it was called the Aspire Mirror. Yes. Okay. What happened? (laughs) So as I was building it, I put a webcam on it and I then added some face tracking software. So the image or the filter could follow my face in the mirror, but it didn't really work that well until I literally put a white mask on my dark face. And that's when it started to track my movements. And so I am a dark-skinned woman. I call myself highly melanated. So I was using the system like my light-skinned friends' colleagues were, you know, and I did not have the same results. And you had a white mask or you went and got one when you saw it didn't work for you? Yeah, it was around Halloween time. And the white mask happened to be in my office while I was testing the systems. Like a Venetian mask kind of thing? Yes. But it couldn't track your face at all? Uh, Not consistently. So to get my project done wearing the white mask made my life a lot easier. And so it was this experience of literally coding in white face at MIT, this epicenter of innovation, that it became quite clear to me there could be some issues here. So I really started looking into, are machines truly neutral? Is it just a one-off situation? Is it just my face? So what did you think when this happened? Did you think immediately, oh no, it's not able to track Black faces? Well, because I have worked with computer vision before and I had worked with facial detection systems before, this wasn't my first time (laughs) encountering these sorts of issues. I thought it was mainly because of lighting and illumination. So this is actually what led me to do my MIT master's thesis where I could do a more comprehensive investigation. After I had this experience of coding in a white mask, I did a TED Talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what? People might check my claims. Let me check myself. So I ran my TED profile image at the time through commercially available AI systems that analyze faces. And some didn't detect me at all. And the ones that did detect my face labeled me male. And so that's what led me to say, oh, let me test how gender classification is working with these systems. So the personal experience then led to the comprehensive research. So explain the uses of facial recognition and where does this technology show up in our everyday lives? 
I mean, you can have law enforcement use of uh, facial recognition. You actually had this case uh, leading to a wrongful arrest. Robert Williams was uh, arrested in front of his two young daughters, detained for around 30 hours with this kind of use of facial recognition uh, technologies. You might have landlords using it as a way of entering buildings. You've likely encountered it online, social media, Facebook, tagging faces automatically. You've seen it when Snapchat filters are being applied. And I'm using the term facial recognition technologies as a catch-all for many ways in which you're analyzing a face. But it's everywhere, including on your iPhone or some or any other thing. There's there, It will be on planes if you use clear. Yeah, transportation. Another key area that we're seeing, especially with COVID, is the use in education and e-proctoring. So how many companies are dominating the AI space right now? And who are the major players? Why don't you lay them out for people? Sure. So in the big nine, we have the G-Mafia, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and IBM in the United States. And then in China, where we also have some uh, heavy hitters, right? We have Alibaba, we have Baidu, we have Tencent. And so these nine major companies are taking the lion's share when it comes to uh, the uh, AI work that's uh, being done. So this starts with a database of images that are used to train AI. So where do the images come from? Explain how they get into the system because people are producing images at a quantum rate. Yeah, so we're seeing the unbridled harvesting of face data. And you ask, where are these images coming from? In the case of Clearview AI, they've scraped more than 3 billion photos based on social media posts and so forth. So as we have our cell phones and as we're uploading images, right, companies like Clearview AI can go online and take that data, scrape that data. And people are uploading them themselves, constant pictures of themselves and their close family members. Well, sometimes what you'll see as happened with the case in Flickr, people upload images online for one purpose, not knowing it's going to be repurposed for something else. So I think it's really important not to make it as if, oh, people uploaded their photos because they right. wanted to be certain. No, they did know. not want to be. Right. You know, the, it was used in a different context. That's right. This is, it's called scraping sometimes. And people, there's all kinds of ways companies can get a hold of pictures to do these kind of things without your knowledge. And that's the major part, right? This is happening without consent. All right, we'll get to Clearview AI in a minute. So explain actual biometric scanning, because that's another thing. In parts of London, we've seen uh, police deploy cameras mounted on vans, but they're everywhere there. Um, They use live facial recognition in public areas. People passing by might not know their face prints can be scanned. Talk about how automated facial recognition works in a public setting. Yes. So when we're seeing that kind of use of uh, facial recognition for surveillance, which is one of the most dangerous uh, uses of facial recognition, what's happening is a a camera feed is being analyzed. So it's ongoing, it's continuous, so it's covert. You don't necessarily know it's happening because it can be on any camera anywhere. And what's happening is your face is being analyzed and then You have a unique face print, think of it like your fingerprint, that's being taken and compared to a data set of other faces. So it could be faces of 
a wanted terrorist. It could be uh, faces uh, from uh, a DMV, right? It could be faces from uh, passport photos that have been collected. So your face is being analyzed against uh, pre-existing data to see if you uh, show up as someone of interest. We mentioned Clearview AI, which I think is sort of in the crosshairs. Um, And although law enforcement used the tool a couple of years ago to catch a suspect in a child sex abuse crime, the Times also called Clearview a company that could, quote, end privacy as we know it. There was just a BuzzFeed investigation where more than 7,000 individuals from about 1,800 publicly funded agencies, including police forces, ICE, the Air Force, public schools, were using Clearview software to search millions of faces in the U.S., before February 2020, much of the time, as you said, without training or any oversight. A lot of the time, the user's bosses didn't even know they were using the tool. Talk a little bit about this, because it doesn't just run off mugshot databases. It runs off social media and websites. Yes. So Clearview changes the game because everybody is in the lineup. You now have a perpetual lineup of anybody who they've scraped, so three billion photos. So this means instead of a case where you know it's constrained to just people who are in this mugshot data set, you could potentially be matched um, when they run their search over their more than 3 billion photos. So this means you have such a wide dragnet with no consent, again, to even be part of a search in the first place. Right. So you're being searched without your knowledge or you being in a database. What does the fact that it's been conducted secretly tell us about how widely Clearview has been spreading its services? Because this was being used so widely, just sort of off the cuff. I think what is really interesting to note here is the people at the top of these organizations aren't always aware that these technologies are being used. And part of it is how they um, are introduced. So Clearview might go to uh, some uh, police officer or some other individual in a company and offer a free trial. So you get them hooked and then you start... uh, having other people adopt it. And so the ways in which these systems are introduced shows us it is a wild, wild west. And so the case of Clearview AI shows what happens when we don't have these safeguards. Right. The same time the CEO of Clearview said it's immune to problems with algorithmic bias. Have you tested its accuracy? What do you think of that argument? <laughs> the the whole framing of immune to algorithmic bias does not compute with me if you're using anything that is based on probabilistic methods. But more importantly, none of these AI systems are immune to systemic bias. And it gives them more of a certainty if they have a computer, you know, establishing their own biases, especially if the computer is wrong. So you heard that argument that facial recognition is only something to worry about if you're a criminal. What's your response to that? Clearview AI shows you that it's already not the case because you're already in this perpetual lineup to begin with. And I think the other part of it is thinking about privacy in general. What does it mean if you cannot walk the streets with any sense of being anonymous, right? So where you go to worship, where you go after hours, all all parts of your life can be on surveillance. So if you have a face, you have a place in this conversation from a standpoint of civil rights, from a standpoint of privacy as well. Yeah, so this documentary you're featured in, Coded Bias, which is now available on Netflix and PBS, there's a 14-year-old Black teenager who police in London misidentify as a suspect. 
He's walking in his school uniform and the cops stop him before letting him go. People gather around and his friends are like, what are you doing? And the police are like, well, just in case we're making sure. This is their argument that the benefits outweigh the harms, that we need to do it just in case. What's your response to this? Who do these burdens fall on for just in case, right? When we looked at stop and frisk, it was just in case and it was unjust. So to me, that kind of argument, we have to look at the harms. What's the experience to that 14-year-old boy being stopped by the police. So for the police, it's a just in case. For this boy, it's a traumatic um, experience. And also Robert Williams being wrongfully arrested. Was he released eventually? Yes, but there's still an indelible impact. So it's not just a case of um, we're taking extra precautions because when you take those extra precautions, real people, real lives are in the crosshairs. So one of the things when I interviewed Andy Jassy, who's about to become the Amazon CEO, Um, I asked him about Amazon's recognition technology and some of its shortcomings, which have been, there's been lots of tests of that too. And he was dismissive about how facial recognition could be misused. He said, let me read the quote exactly, like anything else, with whether it's the private sector companies or police forces, you have to be accountable to your actions. You have to be responsible if you misuse it. He was talking about law enforcement agencies, but whose responsibility should it be if the technology is misused or the technology is kind of glitchy, as in the case with Amazon? Yeah, I definitely think vendors have a responsibility. And this is why when uh, uh, we're looking at a situation like the um, FDA, you know, you wouldn't say, oh, well, if you use a vaccine and it doesn't work, (laughs) the person who used the vaccine uh, is who is accountable. You would say the vaccine makers have some accountability. Now, at the same time, the people who purchased the vaccine right, should have had processes in place to uh, test the verifiability of the claims. So you don't just purchase it without some assurance. I do believe there's accountability throughout, but I do not believe in um, this abdication of responsibility and just say it's user error or these companies are misusing it. And I mean, there's even a know your customer, right? Where you have to have some responsibility as to who you're selling certain uh, products to. So it's also not just the case that these systems are somehow being uh, mishandled or misused. So as the case with most technology, there are benefits and drawbacks to AI. Talk about the benefits of AI to our society. Well, for me, one of the promising areas is for earlier detection of uh, breast cancer. And so um, we talk about how people in African nations are using that kind of technology to uh, look at crops, you know, to assess for uh, various diseases and so forth. So it's not to say it's all bad. Very much like the internet is what it is. But some law enforcement agencies are using it. For example, helping catch insurrectionists in the attack on the Capitol. They put pictures up. They're looking for them using facial recognition. When a gunman opened fire in a newsroom in Annapolis in 2018, he refused to cooperate and give his name. The police used facial recognition technology to ID him uh, when the fingerprinting analysis was taking too long. And then some people feel like when it comes to tackling COVID, you could have applications. Well, You might say, okay, we're going to use uh, facial recognition technology and it's going to allow us to be more efficient. But then what happens is if you're getting uh, biased technology, 
right, that's leading to uh, wrongful arrests, the promises don't necessarily uh, weigh up to the actual outcomes. A lot of people in the police departments or law enforcement, they're saying we don't even know how to configure <laughs> these systems in the first place. So we are at the mercy of what these companies are telling us. So a couple of years ago, you tested the facial recognition software of some big tech companies like Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, and the Chinese company Face++. What did you find of all those? Yeah, so we did two studies, right? So the first study is based on my MIT thesis. And what I found was for the task of gender classification, all of these systems overall work better on uh, the faces labeled men than women. They all work better on lighter faces than darker faces. And none of them had error rates of more than 1% for uh, lighter skinned men. But when it came to women of color, the highly melanated like me, you had error rates that were more in the 30s. So that was the first uh, study that um, I did. And uh, that study included Microsoft, included IBM, and included uh, MegV or Face++, the Chinese tech company. So then we did a follow-on study. That study included Amazon and Kairos. What was so surprising to me about the follow-on study was the air rates for Amazon was that of its peers the year prior. So it's like you have the test results are out for a year. And in fact, I even wrote a letter um, to uh, Jeff Bezos before the paper came out that, look, we, we haven't even yet submitted this, but we're seeing uh, some issues on the gender classification aspect of recognition. You're talking about recognition, Amazon's brand of face recognition software, which they cleverly spell with a K. This makes us concerned about other tasks that recognition is being used for. We gave you the test and still you got a D. <laughs> right. So Jeff never replied? I didn't get a reply okay. back. All right. Okay. Just to be clear. Okay. And this was especially concerning because at the time, Amazon and Microsoft were both going for really lucrative contracts uh, with the Pentagon to provide uh, AI services. And I think our research came out, you know, as those decisions uh, were being made at that time. So one of the things Amazon did try to discredit your research by saying facial analysis and facial recognition are completely different terms and underlying technology. But IBM and Microsoft responded to your tests by saying they would make facial recognition technology more accurate. How do you move them to do this? If Amazon got this D a year later, what where's the pressure points to get them to do that? Well, what we have to think about is what are we moving them to do? If it's understood, what we're moving them to do is to, quote unquote, improve the technology. We're nonetheless helping powerful actors develop powerful tools that can be used as tools of oppression, right? Tools of social control. With the Amazon situation, we saw after the murder of George Floyd, right, that IBM, then Microsoft and Amazon pulled back from selling facial recognition technology to law enforcement in different capacities. And I think that response of not even selling the technology, right, is another approach. It, the answer isn't always let's go collect more data and optimize tools of oppression. 
All right. So when you have these systems that are very effective, a lot of people point to China, which is using very aggressive AI modeling and has instituted facial recognition widely. They have a social credit scoring system where Chinese citizens submit to facial recognition for all kinds of things, using public transport, shopping, getting internet service. Someone in the, in the documentary called it algorithmic obedience training. I've heard it dozens of times. Like in the U.S., we're not as bad as China. Some of this is necessary. How do you compare the two countries? Because one person in the film said, even though it looks like China is so bad, at least they're transparent. Well, transparent to some extent. I mean, one thing we have to look at, right, is the fact that we're a democracy. And so the level of state control and state intervention and also the level of coordination and the level of data collection is on a different level than the U.S. because we're looking at different kinds of political systems uh, in the first place. I will say another area that China is different from the U.S. is the level of um, investment in artificial intelligence. And I think there is an opportunity for the U.S. to invest more in AI, but invest in a way where we're looking at issues of algorithmic harms, you know, but At the moment, what we're seeing is the adoption of systems by uh, government agencies that then allows more state control becoming closer and closer to China. Does it give you pause that if you're getting them to be more accurate, uh, the overall system's more effective, it also means they can use them for surveillance. Uh, A lot of people are resistant to this technology. I think when people look at the research that I've done, one assumption is the use of this research is to improve technical systems. For me, the biggest takeaway from our research was the fact that we have to ask questions and we can't just assume whether it's facial recognition or other kinds of AI systems that just because it's coming from a major tech company means that it works as advertising. But the other thing that was really important for me was it was a counter narrative to the sophistication of tech. What does it mean that a young Black woman with a data set of 1,270 images can put some of the largest tech companies on their toes? They're supposed to have the best of the best, (laughs) right? Working on artificial intelligence, how did you miss something so stark, so impactful, and so glaring? So when I look at the research, there is the part of, okay, let's go optimize these systems. But there's another one, which is a challenge um, to the tech industry itself. And so that was the major thing, right? To pop the bubble. That they're so smart. That it's so sophisticated. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with NASA's Diana Trujillo, and get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Joy Bullamweenie after the break. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. 
Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day. For those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. I want to play a clip from testimony to the House Oversight and Reform facial recognition hearing. This was 2019 when you were being questioned by New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Ms. Bulamwini, I, I heard your opening statement, and we saw that these algorithms are um, effective to different degrees. So are, are they most effective on women? No. Are they most effective on people of color? Absolutely not. Are they most effective on people of different gender expressions? No, in fact, they exclude them. So what demographic is it mostly effective on? White men. And who are the primary engineers and designers of these algorithms? Definitely white men. What's the link between mostly white men who program these algorithms and how it ends up creating a social risk factor for certain people? Yes. Well, what I've seen is it leads to a certain kind of privileged ignorance when you have a largely homogeneous group of people developing technology that's deployed on the rest of society. And so in my experience, the very people making the systems are the people who oftentimes are least likely to suffer the harms. And so the perspectives in terms of what can go wrong aren't either being prioritized if they're known, right? They're dismissed, or sometimes it's not even a question that's being asked. And this is what I saw with my own research. One of the major contributions for my MIT work was actually saying, wait a second, the ways in which we're even evaluating systems for how well they work doesn't include who I like to call the undersampled majority, women and people of color. You might have a false sense of progress because it works well for you and your buddy down the hall. So how much does it matter who is choosing the training data to feed in the algorithms? Well, it depends on the methods that are being used as well as who. And I think sometimes there is this perception that, oh, if you have a more inclusive or diverse workforce, then you're going to address the problem. But we also can't kid ourselves in thinking that's a Band-Aid if we don't change the underlying processes. So the AI research community looks like what? 
the AI research community looks like a lot of the pale-mail data sets I was uh, taking a look at, right? I think um, women are under 14% hovering around uh, those numbers, women of color, single digits. And so this is a very homogeneous uh, space. And it also means the type of research that's conducted, the types of research questions that are even considered worthy of study. And what gets funded. And absolutely what gets funded is uh, based on the priorities of who's in charge. All right, tech companies are pretending at least to do their own algorithmic hygiene, I guess. But two high-profile members of Google's ethical AI team were recently fired, Timnit Gebru and Margaret Mitchell. Timnit is a friend and collaborator of yours. She says she was fired for writing a paper that criticized a new kind of language technology that is potentially biased. Mitchell was fired after defending her, but Google says Mitchell violated the company's code of conduct and security policies. Uh, What did their dismissals tell you about Silicon Valley's tolerance for being criticized? Yeah, so the issues with uh, Dr. Timnit Gebru and Dr. Uh, Meg Mitchell show us as long as the exercise of AI ethics does not impede the business model or the bottom line, it is allowed to continue. The fact that they were dismissed but largely tied to doing their work <laughs> tells us, again, change cannot come uh, from the inside. They cannot algorithmically clean themselves, apparently. They need someone else to do so. So let's get into what to do about that. If they cannot algorithmically clean themselves or conduct proper hygiene in the U.S., concern about facial recognition and AI seems to have bipartisan support. So where is Congress on the issue now? You did that, that, that hearing quite a while ago when it comes to oversight and creating rules for ethical use of technology. I'm happy to report that in 2020, uh, Senator Markey actually introduced the Facial Recognition and Biometric Technology Moratorium Act. And so this is one of the most comprehensive pieces of legislation that has been uh, introduced when it comes to actually putting in some red lines for facial recognition technologies and other remote biometric technologies in the U.S. And so the ACLU and 40 other civil rights organizations have urged the Biden um, administration to go ahead and pass uh, that legislation on the federal level. When we're looking at the city level, we've seen, you know, cities around the country put serious limitations on these technologies. So you are starting to see some pushes when it comes to specific types of technologies. But when it comes to larger issues of algorithmic bias and pulling back just to regulating Mm -hmm. big tech in general, we are still far behind. Far behind. So your your friend, Kathy O'Neill, said in the documentary Coded Bias, we need an FDA for algorithms. What are the benefits and limits of of an FDA-type model? I think one of the key benefits is the fact that there's some level of uh, oversight uh, that's provided because at the moment, you can basically sell and market almost any type of uh, AI system. And there generally aren't checks to even verify the claims. When you brought up Amazon saying that uh, police departments need to make sure they're not misusing these systems and so forth, what are the guidelines and standards that are in place in the first place? And how do you even know that the system being sold by Amazon or others actually does does what it says it's going to do. Tech people just love that one, telling them what to do. 
It's going to go over like a... Tell them what not to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they, we want to be regulated, Kara. Mm, Okay. They want to write the regulations. Indeed. Um, But Microsoft did back a bill in Washington State to require notices in public places where facial recognition is used to ensure government agencies get a court order when looking for specific people. That was written by a Microsoft employee who is also a state senator. What are some of the protections you would advocate for? I would advocate for community control over police surveillance, of which there are model bills. So this doesn't just give you a notice. This gives you a choice whether or not these systems should be used in the first place. So we need to go back to a model where people actually can decide. Mm -hmm. So when I look at the bills that are oftentimes introduced, um, that are heavily championed by tech companies, the type of accountability that really involves the X-coded, right? The people who are most impacted by these systems uh, oftentimes uh, isn't there. So the legislation that I've seen from tech companies is regulation light, unsurprisingly. Yeah, which is what they want. See, we're doing something about it. We're, we're doing something, but the level of accountability isn't there. All right, I want to finish up by talking about what's worrying you upcoming in AI. Um, is this multi-model biometrics, for example, which is using more than one type of biometric. It could be your voice plus your gait plus your face. Uh, one of the things during the pandemic, there were people wearing face masks. There's technology to try to go around the idea of filling in faces. These are things I'm worried about. What are you worried about? Yes, I'm certainly worried about the rise of remote uh, biometrics. Um, for sure. I think something else that I'm starting to see more and more, if there's an ism, it's happening, right? And we often talk about racism or sexism or classism, but we seldom talk about ableism. And I'm concerned that as more and more uh, of society is moving towards algorithmic systems, that the impact of ableism is going to be uh, further pronounced. And I mean, within a lifetime, you might become disabled at any uh, particular moment in time. So when we're looking at how ableism can uh, creep up, when we're thinking about the use of AI systems, let's say in education or in healthcare, um, or especially uh, in employment, right, where we might analyze your voice or we might analyze your face, or we're tracking how you're working, right, to uh, inform your future at a particular company or your or even deemed worthy um, of a job. And I think also looking at the labor dynamics as well when it comes to how these systems um, are created, but also how algorithms are being used to monitor workers. Which is an issue with, with Amazon. Absolutely. So when I think about the trends, I'm thinking about where people are being harmed by what's being introduced. Joy, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Hiba Elorbani, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naeem Araza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Shannon Busta and Liriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. 
If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. And you better be listening because I'm watching you. Oh, I'm not, but I am. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.